This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London alongside Alex Steele over in New York. The first half has finished and wow, what a ride it has been. Let me just give you some numbers. Let me just give you a taste uh, of what is happening here. Basically, the stock 600 here in Europe down by 17% year to date. That is the worst start to a year since 2008. But let me give you some other numbers. The Irish market down by 25%. The Austrian market down by 25%. The Swedish market down by 22%. The FTSE 100 is only down by 2.7%. But the pound is down over the first half against the US dollar by 10%. The Japanese yen, though, against the dollar down by 17%. Uh, in terms of yields, they have rocketed. Italian yields up by 2 208 basis points natural gas here in Europe are by 105 percent it has been quite the ride Alex Steele it really has honestly I mean here in the U.S. you mentioned it S&P worst half since 1970 for a second it was the worst half since 1962 20 percent yeah Pretty intense uh information technology biggest fall since 20 uh, 2002 we remember when that happened, right? And individual stocks also. I mean, it's worth mentioning this. Tesla, biggest, worst fall on record in the first half. Same thing for Facebook. Uh, for Apple, you're looking at the biggest fall since 2013. Amazon, since 2000. I mean, we could honestly just do an hour going back with soups. It's been really bad for a lot of investors, and it's been a lot of whippy action as well. I feel like once we get the next couple weeks out of the way, then it's sort of like, now what? How do we factor in the inflation versus recession scenario? Yep. And and what happens with the war? I, one of the big unknowns here totally. really is what happens in Ukraine, how the Russians continue to react. Do they cut the gas off into the second half of the year into Europe? Huge factors that we still, we still don't know the answer to. Brent crude is up by nearly 50% year to date. The price of crude up by nearly 50%. We can all feel that. The cost of living squeeze, uh, another word for inflation, really ripping through just about every economy on earth right now. And it could be even more treacherous in the second half. We're going to talk more about this in just a moment, try and get some analysis on what we learned in the first half and what it tells us about the second half. John Authors will be joining us. But first, some headlines. Charlie Pell. Hi, thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Here's what's going on. UK house prices slowed more than expected this month after a series of interest rate increases raised the cost of mortgages. Nationwide Building Society said prices grew 0.3% in June to £271,613, the slowest since September and less than the 0.5% gain that economists had expected. Russia confirms it withdrew troops from Ukraine Snake Island in the Black Sea after the Ukrainian military said it had driven them out under massive attack. The defense ministry in Moscow called the decision a gesture aimed at easing grain shipments from Ukraine, but a top official in Kyiv dismissed that claim there was no sign of a long-sought deal on deliveries aimed at easing a global food crisis. 
The Netherlands advertising watchdog has ruled for the fourth time this year that an ad campaign by Shell about its efforts to reduce carbon dioxide emissions is misleading and must be pulled from circulation. A national grid is asking UK companies how much electricity demand they will be able to cut next winter to help keep the lights on. The network manager sent a request to some firms last week asking for details and how much they will need to be paid to reduce operations. This, according to a document seen by Bloomberg, it did not disclose how many companies were asked. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Charlie Pellet, thank you very much indeed. There are many adjectives to describe the first half of the year. Um, I think I am probably the most confused I've been in a very long time as to where we are with asset prices, where we are with economic data, where the macro storming more broadly is going, uh, and how the geopolitics plug into that. John Authors, though, is significantly smarter than I am, and I'm sure he has some very good adjectives for the first half of the year. He joins us now, Bloomberg Opinions, John Authors. John, how would you describe the first half? Well, the headline on my uh, newsletter this morning was not good which is a Trumpian, uh, that's the way uh, uh, the former president used to end his tweets at one point. Um, I, 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 I'll stick with that one for now. That, it, it, it was a profoundly not good first half. Uh, I do think um, what's happened with bonds and with energy is what uh, is truly exceptional. Yes, it's worth quarter of, I'm sorry, half, first half for stocks on this side of the Atlantic since 1962. But what has made this very different is that bonds have fallen almost exactly as much. Um, and that that is very, very unusual, as in I can't find a precedent for it. So that that mm-hmm. is the confusing part. That both are Unprecedented then? Pretty much, yeah. Um, so how much of this, do we know why? Like, what's the story? There's been so much that has happened in the last six months. And if we're going to create a narrative, I'm wondering what that narrative is going to be in the next six months. Interesting one. I I think the critical narrative has to start with with inflation and the Fed. It's not very interesting, but it's it's basically the truth that that, uh, there has been a policy error it's possible that the attempt to correct that policy error will create an even greater one. Time will tell on that one. Um, but the most, if there's one amazing thing about this first quarter, the first half is that uh, there were still QE asset purchases intervening in the bond market amazing, uh, for the first three months of this year in the That's States. crazy. And they still, <laughs> and they've only just finished. There have been asset purchases to intervene um, by the ECB that have only just, I think it is today, was the yep. final mm-hmm. uh, formal, formal purchase, which is absolutely stone-cold bonkers. Um, so um, I don't think there is any... There's no doubt in my mind that that, that was a policy mistake uh, and will continue to seem to be a policy mistake, whatever happens in the next 6-12 months. Um, the question of whether we are now overcompensating um, will probably dominate the dominate discussion for the next few months. You, you can certainly make an argument from the latest data that 
the super tanker is steadily turning. That the the the, the, uh, the um, uh, economy is turning in the direction the Fed wants it to turn to, which may not be comfortable uh, going forward. But you can just about see how we might be getting to that inflection point. John, we heard from Lagarde yesterday. We heard from Powell. Yeah. We heard from Bailey. Yeah. Do you think they know why they made the mistake? And if they know why they made the mistake, does it make it easier to correct it? And if they don't know completely yet why they made the error, doesn't that make correcting the error almost impossible? I love this question. That, I, I love that question, too. It's, it's, it's sort of Donald Rumsfeld meets yeah. um, Wittgenstein or somebody. The... the, the uh, <laughs> Uh, there's a Gettier case where if you believe something, it is true, but for the wrong reasons, do you really actually know it? Um, yep. It's... I think the, the, the standard line from now, up until now, from the central banks has been that they didn't understand how big the supply shock was, and I'm sure that is true. Um, the issue that we need to find out much more about is whether they were wrong about how much they were stimulating demand. Um, that This is where the whole issue of carrying on with QE and being so anxious to reassure people that QE would continue this time last year. Um, whether the classic monetarist idea that if you give put more money in people's pockets, they'll spend it and prices will go up. Um, I'm I'm not at all sure that, that, that they grasped that one either, that, that there had been uh, – Powell, to some extent, admitted this in the uh, – talking to Francine yesterday on the uh, Centre that, that uh, they hadn't really um, grasped the, the post-crisis world where whatever you do, inflation doesn't pick up, that you're caught in this, this trap. They, they hadn't grasped soon enough that that was – now over the the, the, the jolt of um, the pandemic and the money to to deal with it really had got us out of that culture and um, that makes life very difficult. There is a, there are the supply issues they have to be worried about. They are genuinely unlucky in what's happened with Chinese COVID shutdowns and with oil following the uh, Ukraine invasion this this year. That's that's genuine bad luck central bankers who had already made a bad mistake. But, um, but and yes, that's what it begs the right. question, though, John. And, yeah. and it feels like the markets are starting to anticipate this by looking at a Fed cut in 2023. That inflation yeah. may, well, I wonder, does inflation come down a little faster than we thought, but the Fed doesn't pivot fast enough now? Is it the opposite problem, and that, that therefore then we get that recession? That is, that is plainly now the dominant concern. Um, I have the 10-year yield up on the, uh, the terminal in front of me. It's now 2.9851, so we have left the world of 3% yields. There is a very faint chance that by the end of today, I don't think it'll happen unless it, because stocks have picked up, there's a faint chance that bonds will be ahead of stocks for the first six months by the end of today because because bonds are recovering very, very sharply, which implies bearishness about a recession. My concern, my greatest worry about that at this point is that people are too easily discounting stagflation risks. You know, sticky prices have started rising 
that is difficult to um, put back in a bottle. Wage demands are rising for the very good reason that people feel poorer than they did. Yep. Um, if inflation goes down but is still obdurately four and a half, five percent by the end of this year, the, the, the moves that people have made in the last few weeks will well, look so, yeah. bad. So this is the question that, that I'm also trying to work out at the moment. Hmm. How deep does a recession need to be to drive inflation back down to target? Would that we knew. Uh, I, I would have... Because everybody, everybody's now got... John, John, everybody's now got this yeah. kind of central case of we're going to get a mild recession. But given the yeah. order of magnitude that we're looking at on the inflation prints, is a mild recession yeah. enough? It depends. If if you don't get help from those two big geopolitical factors that I yep. that I mentioned earlier, China and Russia, I'm not sure it is. Um, so we end up with the, we get, end up with the kind of waves of inflation like the 70s. We think we got yeah. it under control, but we haven't, and it comes back. That's a really bad scenario. Yeah, and and history shows that inflation doesn't sort of get to 15 percent and then stay at 15 percent for two or three years. It moves just as you said in waves um so you I, I i would be surprised if we haven't seen the peak for now which is what people have been worried about but that could lead to a, or it is at this moment leading to premature declarations of victory over inflation and possibly somewhat premature recession calls i mean yeah the the the, the second order derivatives are turning the the, the rate of increase in Claims from a very low data is now very, from a very low base is now very fast, but it's still a little hard to see the American economy in anything you could call a recession this year. Not ruling it out, but it's certainly not uh, as likely as uh, prices currently imply. I, I don't think. And also, it's a difference between a recession versus a growth slowing. I understand yeah. that technically we know there's a difference, but I, I wonder if the market has been able to dissect the difference in, in how it's pricing. Well, it is. It's, yeah, that's a very, that's a very, that's a, a very good point. Uh, again, you come up against the issue. Of, um, um, I, I was, I was watching you and Creasy on TV earlier, Alex, when you were both proud to say you weren't around in 1962. Um, to be fair, Guy was not I. around either, <laughs> and uh, neither yeah. were you, guy John. Was around, that guy wasn't around either. Yes, and um, this is where the issue gets the. the uh, I have memories as a child of the 70s, but, but basically nobody much under the age of 60 really has any understanding of what it feels like, what the dynamics are like nope. when inflation has become unmoored. It's been moored to a greater or lesser extent in the developed world for, for more than a generation. Uh, and that is a big problem for, for all of us because... Um, there isn't a substitute. You know, the great majority of people have done yeah. enough economics at school or university to, to, to understand what inflation is, to understand the, uh, the macroeconomic trade-offs, but there's still no substitute for actually having experience. Yeah. It's at the level of imagination. It's, it's um, What you're talking about there, Alex, in some ways, is a, is a, is a, a lack of imagination about what could happen to, to growth John, uh, as inflation just. We'll wrap it up there. The 80s were great, though. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. 
Good evening. You're listening to Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele here in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. It's just after 5 o'clock where you guys are. So one stock that was getting hit quite hard uh, over in Germany was Uniper. Um, Uniper is basically a utility company. And it can't really pass on price increases to customers. And it's getting really, really squeezed. And it's losing a lot of money really fast. And the question are, is, can German authorities now step in and either help Uniper survive or they're yep. going to let the Uniper pass on costs uh, to consumers? But this is, at the crux, and a great example of the energy crisis that's unfolding in Europe. German authorities have already said you're on high alert. And also that potentially this could be a Lehman-like crisis. Um, this was a huge mover here. Let's get Rachel Morrison now, uh, Bloomberg News energy reporter, joining us. Um, Rachel, can you just paint a broader picture of Uniper and kind of where where they're struggling, why they're losing so much money, and how dire it is? Hi. Yes. So, Uniper is a huge German utility and, in fact, the biggest importer of Russian gas in Germany. And so that's really where this pinch point is coming for them, because before the crisis, they were already um, in a bit of trouble uh, with financing and with the decrease in flows from Russia along the Nord Stream pipeline that we've spoken so much about. They are trying to source gas to meet the contract to fulfill what they've promised to their customers. So they have to buy that gas in the spot market at a much higher price. So they, we have estimates that that's costing them $30 million uh, a day to do that. So this is just racking up, and the German emergency plan doesn't allow them to change the contract details with their customers to pass these costs on. So they are just bearing those costs, and it's becoming unbearable for them. So late yesterday, they, they suspended all guidance and said they'd gone into talks with the German government about a bailout because... They can't find enough liquidity to to trade, yeah. to buy the gas that they need, and they may soon default on, on their supply contract. And this is fundamentally because they can't pass on prices. They are, as a result of a German government decision, not able to pass on their price, the price increases, this $30 million a day, to consumers and industrials. Yes. With the triggering of the second step of Germany's emergency plan, they, the, the government could allow companies to do that. They've held off from doing that. Um, the economy minister wanted to see how it played out without doing that because obviously passing on costs to businesses and homes will will drive that whole inflation story. But it seems as though, from at least the Uniper story, that, that this is not playing out well and that it's really hurting well, the companies. And analysts are saying it won't just be Uniper, it'll be other companies too across Europe. It's really going to be quite widespread unless they can pass these costs on. But isn't this just semantics? Because at the end of the day, if, if Uniper has to be bailed out by the German government, the consumers might not be actually paying more in their utility bill, but the government's still going to have to bail them out, right? So isn't it just all coming, like, in essence, the German government's going to have to support either customers or the companies? Yes. So the the utilities are lobbying for that, saying that if they pass on the costs and that's not, you know, palatable to the government in terms of voters or for businesses, that the government could support that cost or, as you say, could bail out Uniper and then they still would not be able to pass on the cost. So either way, somebody has to prop this up. The government in some form has to help because it's the, the current situation, it's clear that the companies are really kind of, and Uniper in this case, is really starting to give. Um, 
Rachel, I was talking to a fairly senior EU official last night, and he was voicing concerns that at the beginning of next month, 7th was the date that he mentioned, but I've heard also the 11th, that Nord Stream 2, which is the giant pipeline that takes gas from Russia to Germany, will be shut down for maintenance. And that maintenance may last quite some time. Effectively, the Russians are going to cut gas off. Potentially, they're going to point the Germans towards Nord Stream 2, which is obviously very difficult at the moment, uh, and say you can use that if you want, but it's likely that the Germans will refuse. Are we on the precipice of Germany effectively being fully cut off from Russian gas? Yes, that is the fear. So it's the 11th of, of July that we understand. And what that really comes on top of this this period of time where flows have been reduced. So already the the alternative supplies are being tapped. So what, first of all, that outage will show is if there's enough extra flows to meet that on top of already constrained um, flows from Russia. And for that 10-day period, what happened? Do we find some companies unable to, to find extra supplies and so can't meet their contracts? You know, will companies have to declare force majeure? And then, as you say, what if Russia decides not to turn Nord Stream back on again? Um, that is that is a risk that everybody is worried about because that really puts the gas storage targets in danger if those flows aren't restored. So if Russia says, well, Nord Stream 1 has all this maintenance problem, but hey, guys, here's all this energy I can get you from Nord Stream 2, then what happens? <laughs> Yes, we, they, Russia were sort of pushing that idea a few weeks ago, but it would be completely impossible for the EU, given the sanctions, to to let that happen, to use Nord Stream 2. So I, I just don't think that that is going to get anywhere. They may try it, but it would be very difficult for Europe, in, impossible to use Nord Stream 2. I think we would we would then be more likely to head towards the kind of gas rationing at what point does that get triggered, though, Rachel? Where, where, do we, where do we know that we haven't got enough? During the summer, the focus is on filling storage. So demand is low. We should be able to meet what we need. But if you use the gas now when we don't really need it so much and you don't put it in storage, it just kicks everything forward to the winter where we don't have enough in storage, we don't have enough flows, we do have increased demand, and that makes winter look very scary. Yeah. Excellent. On that note, yay. Jumpers it's June time. 30th. <laughs> Get out there and buy some sweaters this winter. <laughs> this summer, ready for this winter. Um, yeah, it's going to be difficult. Um, and the industrial effect is going to be absolutely massive, I think. Um, if, the if rationing, start to, yeah, gas rationing. I, the the German economy, I've seen, I've seen forecasts that it could be down 8 to 12% in terms of the economic hit here. Rachel, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Bloomberg's Rachel Morrison on what's happening in the gas market right now. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio, The Cable. I'm Alex Steele here in New York. Guy Johnson's over in London 
We are all very excited that the first half of the year is over. I gotta tell you. If you're an investor who has long equities, maybe you're not so happy. The superlatives are really unbelievable. The S&P is on track for its worst half of the year uh, since 1970. We flirted with the potential of being the worst since 62. And anywhere you look, it's been really brutal. Energy, though, natural gas, they outperformed. We've seen wild swings in the bond market, tons of repricing, and tons of volatility. Um, and that's not ending anytime soon. Today, we got uh, uh, the PCE data. Prices might have been capped a bit, but that consumer spending really wound up slowing. So those higher prices eating into what people are able to actually spend and in terms of their money. The durable goods order starting to roll over uh, a little bit as well. Um, let's get some other news here. Here is Charlie Pellet. Thanks very much. Here's what's going on, Alex Steele. We have uh, tens of thousands of BT Group's unionized workers voting in favor of the first national walkout from the company in more than three decades. The collapse of pay rise negotiations in April led the UK's Communication Workers Union to ballot more than 40,000 members on whether to take industrial action, the results of which were announced in London this afternoon. Barclays says it's going to give 1,200-pound pay rises to 35,000 of its UK-based staff, the latest lender to boost wages as the cost-of-living crisis deepens. According to an emailed statement, employees in customer-facing branch and junior support roles will be getting the increase to their annual pensionable salary from August 1st. London Heathrow and Paris Charles de Gaulle airports are canceling more flights as Europe's travel chaos continues into the summer. Heathrow asked airlines to cut 30 services this morning, citing concern that peak passenger numbers will exceed levels it could handle safely. And France's Civil Aviation Authority ordered a 17% reduction in flights from CDG amid a firefighter strike and extended the curbs into tomorrow. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. Nuts! That is nuts. And then you have Delta CEO. I don't know if you saw this guy, but yeah. he sends a letter to SkyMile members apologizing for delays, saying the level of disruption is unacceptable. I don't, I don't think I've ever heard of that before. We were talking to one of our guests a little bit earlier on, saying that one of his colleagues sat on the runway at Heathrow yesterday for three hours and then had the flight cancelled. It's getting pretty bad out there. As Charlie was saying, Heathrow today cutting 30 services. Now, that's out of 1,200, but nevertheless... These were cancelled at very short notice. People arriving at the airport to find that their flights had been cancelled. Over in Paris, again, as Charlie was saying, we've got a strike taking place. It is firefighters, as a result of which Charles de Gaulle had to close two out of the four runways uh, that they have there. And that is likely to extend in tomorrow. I think there's a possibility as well next week that we get a nationwide rail strike in France as well. Oh my God. You've kind of, you're getting a theme here that is running across Europe. It is going to be a very, very difficult summer. Governments are trying to get to grips with it, but really struggling. Bloomberg Siddharth Philip joining us now from our transport team. Sid, we're still in the situation where cancels, flights have been cancelled at very, very short notice. Why aren't airlines able to get a better grip on this? So, Guy, this is like this is a three-way issue with the, uh, with airlines having to deal with their staff as well as airports, and essentially, it's a really big mess for the airline industry at the moment. Because while some issues are with airports, some of them are with uh, airlines, some of them are with uh, sort of ancillary services at airports. So it is really across the board, and it's across regions, it's across different geographies, and every new every day it's a new airport, a new issue. So. 
it is really getting difficult for travelers this summer. Um, Sid, I don't know if you can answer this one because this is more U.S.-based, but let me try it. I mean, here, we bailed out the airline industry. We gave them billions of dollars so they wouldn't fire their staff and they'd keep the, and, and people would be able to keep their jobs, et cetera. And I'm, I'm thinking, like, what did they do with that money? I just don't understand. Yeah, I mean, it, it is really a major question. I mean, don't forget, there's also the cost of living crisis, which is also weighing in on uh, staff. And that's why you have instances of staff uh, sort of striking work and sort of asking for better pay. And it's sort of really sort of dependent on how it sort of goes from here in terms of how the airlines are able to sort of ramp up, get their staffing sort of at the right levels and sort of pay them the right amounts. And at the same time, also be prepared in case there's a recession at the end of the year and in case they need to sort of scale down at the end of the summer when the pent-up demand evaporates. Sid, as you say, Different airline, different day. Different airport, different day. Problems keep rippling across Europe. Um, The problem is, though, that they are all connected. You get a problem at one airport, that ripples through because aircraft, staff, passengers are in the wrong place at the wrong time. In terms of what comes next, what are the major events that we should now be looking for? We've got an IAG strike at Heathrow that is coming up. You're going to see a train strike next week in in France, potentially. Uh, the TGV potentially shut down. Just walk us through the kind of the major milestones and what we're looking at over the next few weeks. So we have staffing. We have uh, uh, cabin crew strikes by EasyJet and Ryanair staff uh, in Spain, Portugal, and other markets coming up in the next few day, uh, next few weeks. We also have the BA uh, strike, uh, check-in staff strike, which hasn't yet been set in terms of dates, but the union has vowed to do it during the school holidays when they would have maximum impact. And they're saying that they're holding out for British Airways to strike a deal. We also have issues with um, sort of obviously you mentioned the rail strike in France. So, I mean, it is looking like it's going to be different issues, different days. And overall, it's going to have a massive impact on travel and sentiment this summer. Yeah, I have to say, I didn't have a desire to get on a plane anyway, but I certainly don't have one now. Um, I'm wondering if we take a look like a year out. The scenario that I'm wondering if we see is all of a sudden airlines and airports scramble to hire a lot of people to make sure these disruptions don't happen again. In the meantime, this pent-up travel stuff is over. People drove instead. They don't want to fly because they're like scarred from this experience. And then we're in an oversupplied market again. Is there any talk about that scenario playing out at all? Uh, that definitely should be on the airline CEO's mind. I mean, ov- obviously, driving is pretty expensive at the moment with gas prices where they are. But uh, besides that, I mean, airline CEOs will definitely be looking at what the visibility looks like beyond this summer because that's really key. Because while everyone's been talking about pent-up demand this summer and it's been well telegraphed, what happens next is really key in terms of determining how the airline industry goes yeah. from here. Remember that they sort of raised lots of debt and sort of stretched their balance sheets at the height of the pandemic. So they need to pay all that back. And that's really key because summer revenues drive sort of they drive profitability. But at the same time, you don't want to lose money over the winter. That sort of you, forces you, you to dip into your reserves. Yeah, the other factor here as well is what's happening to jet fuel prices. Like oil is up by 50 percent year to date. Jet fuel's up by even more. European carriers are hedged this year, but significantly less so next year, Sid. 
Absolutely. I mean, rising costs will be, I mean, jet fuel is one of the most significant costs for any airline. And so while hedges could give you some sort of insulation, you can't hedge forever. And so that will definitely play out on in terms of higher ticket prices. And even higher wages will impact ticket prices. And so then consumer demand, once the pent-up demand has sort of been fulfilled, would really be keen on how, how keen customers are on paying these higher fares that require the inputs require them to do. Sid, always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Bloomberg Sid Half-Philip joining us from our transport team on the chaos that is gripping the transport sector on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, this is something that is likely to persist throughout most of the summer, just at a time when everybody just wants to get out after being locked down. I know Alex doesn't want to, but I think a lot of people Most do. humans do. I'm the they exception to, to most things. They want to party. They want to go somewhere nice. We're expecting a lot of Americans over here this summer given the strength of the dollar that we are seeing. Will they get here? This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Like everything here in the U.S., when you're unhappy with something, you go and you sue some things. And that's exactly what happened to Grayscale. So here's the situation. Uh, Grayscale has a Bitcoin trust. The problem with it is that the trust has a very deep discount to its underlying holdings. To try and unlock more value, etc., and make um, redemptions possible, Grayscale wants to convert the trust into an ETF. Well, yesterday, the SEC denied the company's application to convert that trust into the first physically-backed Bitcoin ETF. So Grayscale, an hour later, turned around, and then they sued the SEC. It's a debate that many in the market are watching, not only to see how Bitcoin develops as an asset class, but also how the SEC winds up uh, treating Bitcoin. They're okay with derivative ETFs, but the physically backed ETFs, uh, they've been really against. Um, so Guy and I sat down along with Katie Greifeld with Michael Sh- uh, Sonnenschein, who heads up Grayscale. The goal is to convert GBTC to an ETF. Uh, when I think back to Grayscale's you know, earliest days when we launched GBTC, we had always envisioned this to be an ETF. And since that time, we've worked tirelessly to now build this into the world's largest Bitcoin fund. Investors have been patient. We know that they want this. We know that they deserve this. And the lawsuit is really intended to challenge the SEC's decision here. And Michael, let's talk about the big issue, which is the discount on GBTC, because yesterday GBT shares closed at a 28% discount to the net asset value. You and I have talked for hours about that. And now with ETF conversion seemingly off the table for at least now, what steps can Grayscale take to try to repair that discount? Well, certainly investors know that the conversion to an ETF is ultimately what will remove the discount. In applying an ETF, you're essentially getting relief from the SEC to ensure that the fund can have simultaneous creations and redemptions, which would arbitrage away that discount. Um, This is such a missed opportunity, Katie, and you know this better than anybody, that the SEC has not allowed this product to come even closer into the regulatory perimeter and give investors greater protection greater disclosure. Um, and, and that really is what will fix the discount in GBTC. Well, with the SEC seemingly sort of digging in its heels here, rejecting the application and others, Bitwise also rejected last night. Is there a situation in which you would decide to liquidate GBTC? 
we remain laser focused on the conversion to an ETF. You know, last night within, you know, less than an hour, as you guys shared, after receiving the SEC's denial, our attorneys filed a petition for review with the appellate court. Um, we've been, you know, you know, guided to believe that it could be, call it nine to 12 months on that decision. It could be a little bit longer, it could be a little bit shorter, but we hold strong in our common sense arguments around the ETF conversion um, and have a fantastic legal bench that will be arguing this yep. case on behalf of investors. Michael, what's the timeline here? Invest investors have been patient thus far. How much longer should they be patient for? Well, I think that when I look at the GBTC shareholder base, right, you now have, you know, millions of Americans who own shares of GBTC, individuals, retirement accounts, ETFs own it, mutual funds own it, institutions own it. These tend to be investors that are investing in Bitcoin over the medium to longer term. And so the way that they've advocated, the way that they've voiced their concerns around this are, in fact, yeah. for an ETF. And we believe that investors will be patient uh, through the lawsuit and ensure that ultimately that conversion does happen is that a this year thing is it a 2023 thing how long do you think it's going to take michael well, as I shared, you know, the fact that we are filing law a lawsuit against a federal regulator causes this issue to bypass the district court and go straight to the appellate court. We've again been guided to believe that that's usually about a nine to 12 month process, could be longer, could be shorter. Um, and that's the timeframes that, you know, we're able to offer at this time. Michael Sonnenschein, the Grayscale Investments CEO. A little disappointed, Alex, after the SEC decision overnight. But clearly others expecting been, it. <laughs> others have been denied. Yeah, the fact that they were so quick to announce that they are suing the SEC mm -hmm. uh, indicates that they probably were expecting it. Others have also been denied as well. Uh, but most of the others have decided not to sue. Uh, I guess we wait for another year to find out whether or not ultimately we're going to get that conversion. Nine months, maybe. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. He tried to weaken us. He expected a resolve to fracture. But he's getting exactly what he did not want. He wanted the Finlandization of NATO. He got the NATOization of Finland. In Madrid. A summit that basically took NATO back onto a very much Cold War footing, uh, a NATO summit that uh, expanded the footprints on which NATO operates. Um, we have a situation now where it looks like we are going to be seeing Sweden and Finland joining. Uh, that is not a that is not a complete certainty. President Erdogan, who has been pivotal uh, down in Turkey to that happening, uh, making clear this evening that if they don't deliver on what has been promised, uh, i.e. Uh, pushing back on their assistance for the Kurds, uh, then he will not allow them to join. Uh, I'm not sure we've got the uh, the President Biden sound, but let's I, I'm going to I'm going to take my life into my my own hands here, basically, uh, and suggest that we do. So let's first of all, listen to President Biden. The one thing that has been destabilizing is the outrageous behavior of the Supreme Court of the United States. So we had some of the sound, <clears throat> some of it. So when he was talking at NATO, 
Um, he talked about, obviously, Ukraine and Putin. We heard him talking about how uh, pr- uh, President Putin tried to weaken the West, but that it didn't work, and now Finland and Sweden are on board. But then he also went on to talk about domestic issues, Guy. He talked about OPEC, for example. <clears throat> he said he's going to ask the Gulf countries to increase production. Uh, he also talked about gas prices, basically like high gas prices are here until the war's over. That was his kind of takeaway. We just have to all kind of deal with it. And the clip you just heard for a moment was him talking about uh, the yep. overturning from the Supreme Court of Roe v. Wade, um, saying that he would support a f- uh, getting rid of the filibuster in the Senate just for this, to codify Roe v. Wade into law. I haven't heard anyone that says that's actually going to happen, but he said it. I'm glad you heard all that, because I didn't hear any of it. That all happened. That was that all, all real. Happened. It all happened. <laughs> it all happened. So I didn't hear any of that sound. So it's good, because because I thought he might be talking about the, the NATO expansion story. But if we if we went to the, the filibuster story, then that's that's fine as well. We can we can certainly talk about that. Look, this is a NATO summit that, that is that is very different to the ones that have preceded it. This is a NATO summit that put very much the NATO story front and center. It put NATO on the front line, uh, a significant expansion of the border with Russia, a, a NATO that put significantly more troops on on high alert to counter the threat that Russia now poses. It also, Alex, I think, and this has always been the debate about NATO. Is it something that is basically a North Atlantic phenomenon or is it a global policeman? And that Mm -hmm. was always the kind of post-Cold War debate around NATO. And in some ways that was resolved at this summit with the nod firmly towards the threat that China poses. And I thought that was interesting as well. In fact, you got a bigger response almost from China as a result of what has been agreed at this NATO summit in Madrid than you did from Russia. Yeah, Uh, I think Anne-Marie is actually here with us now. To help us understand that Hi more. Guys, I am. Yes, she is. Yay. Anne-Marie Hordurin, Bloomer Washington correspondent, uh, joining us from Madrid. So we were talking about sort of the transformation uh, of NATO and how it went from a, sort of a North Atlantic thing to a global policeman, basically. Um, what's been your takeaway from the summit so far? Yeah, the China stuff I think is really interesting because, guys, also remember that since 2010, the last time they came out with this this. Uh, strategic concept, China wasn't even mentioned. Now China is being seen as a systemic challenge. They didn't go as far as to say an adversary, but still, they are name-dropping Beijing, and this is a large group of countries that are signing up to, to say that. And at the same time, in 2010, they called Russia a partner, and now they're saying Russia's the biggest threat towards the alliance. So you see a huge shift in t- tone since the last time they have put out this concept. We should also note that in past NATO meetings, it always becomes a debate about is NATO even obsolete, especially under the former president. I've covered a few of his NATO meetings. Also, a big talking point would be about defense spending. This was really about unity. What can we do to make sure, regardless of what we're dealing at home, we keep this alliance together? And at the same time, they're expanding. It is pretty incredible that Finland and Sweden are joining this alliance. And David Ignatius has been here as well. He's an opinion writer for the Washington Post. And he made a really good point just saying this new, the nucleus of NATO is now moving north and east. And that's where you see all the money is being spent. How much money are we talking about here? I, how, I, to, to rearm, to re-equip, to retool NATO, to deal with this threat, how significant amount of cash are we talking 
Well, it's billions of dollars. I mean, the president today even announced millions more that he's sending to Ukraine. Um, but there's going to be, at least from the United States' point of view, uh, headquarters that will be in Poland now, more troops coming um, on the eastern flank. But at the same time, the budgets of Finland and Sweden that they put forward to their defense sector, now that's part of uh, the NATO pool, if you will. So this is billions of dollars. And it was interesting because President Putin was asked about this, and he said it's not like Ukraine for Finland and Sweden. It's their prerogative. But he did say this just shows that NATO is an imperial power. That's what he, want, that's what he called it. And he said it will only be an issue if there's NATO infrastructure in those territories. Hmm. But you have to think, Putin is clearly going to be worried about Kaliningrad, which is an enclave on the Baltic Sea. It's incredibly important for him strategically in the Baltics. It's also where yep. he has his nuclear missiles. Um, really interesting there, Stubb. Uh, also, to that point, are we surprised that Putin didn't push even harder? We don't have a ton of time on this. I'm not sure. I think potentially he just realized he's really lost this fight with Finland and mm. Sweden. At one point, they called the Finnish president this NATO whisperer, and he had warned him, if this continues, like, we're really considering it. The public support flipped on a dime when he invaded Ukraine. For years, they've talked about this open door, will they or won't they? And once they saw it was going on, not just in eastern Ukraine, missiles coming down in Kiev, the public support immediately yeah. moved. And that's yeah. why you have what we have today, which is a NATO of 30. And Marie, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Emery Hordurin, a Bloomberg Washington correspondent, uh, joining us there. Hope you enjoyed the show. That wraps it up for me and Guy. We'll be back with you uh, tomorrow for the first day of the back half of the year. Feels very exciting. Um, have a great evening, everyone. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio.